You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Man, I love being a pastor. I love serving with you guys, serving you. I hope that you're enjoying North Valley. Uh, this is a great time to be a part of this church and all that God's doing here in our church. Uh, and isn't the worship just great? Can we celebrate that? Hey, uh, recently I was at a lunch for Arizona pastors to receive kind of a special briefing uh, from the Center for Arizona Policy concerning Prop 205 to legalize uh, marijuana uh, from a recreational usage. Now, I'm bringing this up just in the beginning of the message because this is, um, I came out of a lifestyle of drugs, alcohol, the whole thing of rebellion. And um, then I worked as a youth pastor for the next 10 years seeking to win my friends to Christ. And man, I'm just telling you, standing on this side of it, being clean for decades now, uh, walking with Jesus, I don't think this is a good idea to do this, to legalize it for uh, recreational usage. And so I, I want to pause for a moment and just clarify too, this church, North Valley, is not a right-wing church. It's not just a, a, a left-wing church. We are literally like the whole bird, okay? The whole bird. Clarify you, a cardinal bird. So... Uh, <laughs> But we, uh, despite kind of the political affiliation that you guys have, or personally, I want to encourage you to vote on this issue to preserve and protect the next generation uh, for Christ. Uh, watch this video that's being uh, used in churches all around the valley uh, to help us just consider this, this issue. Check this out. Hello. I know you're a church who cares about the next generation, who demonstrates your values and loves our state. As your governor... I'd like you to know why Prop 205 is bad for Arizona and especially harmful to the next generation, our kids. Let me take just a moment to tell you a few reasons why you should vote no on Prop 205. Prop 205 is not about medical marijuana. Marijuana is already available in Arizona with the prescription of a doctor. We don't need to expand access. Prop 205 is all about recreational use. Teen marijuana use in Colorado is the highest in the nation, 74% above the national average. In one Colorado hospital, 50% of newborns tested positive for marijuana in their system. There are now more pot shops in Colorado than Starbucks and McDonald's combined. Nearly half of the marijuana sold in Colorado is marketed to kids in the form of cookies, gummy bears, suckers, and even flavored drinks. Accidental ingestion by kids is up 600% since legalization. And in Denver, none of the money from taxes from marijuana sales has made it into education as promised. They won't in Arizona either. Instead, the money will go to pay for a new government agency with its very own police force, and schools will only get the money left over. Because I love our state and the next generation, and I know you do as well, I ask you to vote no on Prop 205. You don't have to take my word for it. Do your research at noprop205.com and decide. 
Well, here's the reality is that, um, you know, all of us got to make a decision. And ultimately, I just ask that you be uh, held captive by the word of God into your own personal life to make decisions. Um, I want to encourage you, you can find out more about this uh, proposition at uh, no to Prop 205, or if you want uh, a different uh, area where you can research this, azpolicy.org is a good group. Um, And lastly, I just want to encourage you to vote uh, politically uh, for a candidate that you believe best reflects the vision and the values that the Bible upholds. And I understand in our presidential uh, candidacy selection at this point, it's very challenging to see uh, character that we would all hope for in the presidency um, on either side. But at this point, I'd encourage you to vote not simply for a person, but vote for the principles uh, not simply the person. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to ever encourage as a pastor for a congregation to be passive when it comes to our freedoms and rights to protect and preserve our country. And uh, because uh, how we live really matters. And we as a church uh, want to just encourage this, is that, that we live consistent under the conscience and held captive to the word of God. Amen. So I want to encourage you to, to, to take action, use, use your opportunities that you have in a democracy to be able to express what you believe is right. So let me do this. We're going to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. And this morning, is uh, the message is titled, Child of God. And this morning, I want to encourage you, all of you that placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are greatly loved. You have a great heavenly Father. And God, as a Father, establishes rules in which to live by. Uh, that are going to give us more life. And so this morning, as we read uh, the text, it's kind of an introduction to this larger section of Scripture that I'll walk through. Uh, But I want you to understand um, that you are a child of God, and that'll be the theme of this morning's message. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you call us your children, that you are a loving father, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to minister in this time. Bring clearly, uh, Lord, areas of uh, hurt or pain and help us to surrender those to you as a loving father. Help us to navigate through the situations and the things that are going to go before us this week, the challenges that we'll face, the uh, obstacles that we will go through. And Lord, let this time be a time where we're refreshed, renewed, and given clarity and vision for our lives as you desire as a good father. Let us walk in that family that you describe here in the text. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. First thing I want to explain to you is that you are a child of God. If anybody has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to a family. You've got a heavenly father, and uh, the Bible says is that you belong. You need to understand this morning as we get into the text, um, there's kind of these, these themes that John will go through to help you understand that you need to live for God, but first you need to understand that you belong to him. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. And it doesn't matter if you're single, married, divorced, or your father or a mother or grandparent or just a little kid. The Bible says that if you've received Jesus Christ, you're adopted into his family. 
And the apostle John starts here because he's gonna give us some challenging news for us to live under God, our heavenly father's household rules. How many of you growing up, you had a father and there was household rules and you knew that you needed to keep the rules? Raise your hand. You know what I'm saying? And you break the rules, you've got to deal with the consequences. In my household, we have rules to live by. But the important thing to know as a child is that no matter whether you break those rules or not, there's this reality that you need to understand that you, are, you belong. You belong. And John's going to help us understand that this is foundational for all of the movement forward in understanding how to live as a Christian. He says that you belong to him. And look what he writes in 1 John. He says, and now little children, I want you to abide in him. In other words, you spend time with him. You spend time with your heavenly father. And John writes from, a, he's the nearest and the dearest of the disciples. He was the youngest that began to follow Jesus. And now he's writing to all the churches with this father's heart and helping grown men and grown women understand that despite how big they are, how, despite how old they are, they're still in God's eyes, little children and that they need to spend time with their heavenly father. See, that's the key, and that's the secret to living the Christian life is abiding in a relationship with the Lord. This morning, I went for a walk, and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what do you want me to learn from you on this walk this morning? And he impressed upon my heart, Ryan, you're my child. You're a grown man, but you're still my child. See, every single Christian has got to understand that they belong to God. So despite whatever you're going through, whatever's going on in your life, you're loved. You belong. Even if you feel isolated, discouraged, you belong to, to God and to his family. He says, little children, abide in him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us so that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Your identity shapes your activity. John's going to help us to understand that, that you need to know who you are, and that will inform how you live. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and there's a way in which we're to live that should shape what we uh, believe. Second thing we need to see is being a child of God is that we believe in him. See, that's how we got into the family is by believing in Jesus Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ, we accept the adoption cost that Jesus Christ paid on the cross. That was the cost that the father put forward to adopt you into his family was Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in 1 John 2.29, he says, if you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness has been born of him. In other words, your beliefs will begin to shape your behavior. See, spending time with the Father and understanding his ways of doing things and living his life begins to bring upon us this desire to do what's right. And the Bible talks about being born again. And that when we receive Jesus Christ, that we receive this, uh, his, his Holy Spirit works upon us and regenerates and renews and gives us and rewires our desires. And so when we mess up or when we sin, it begins to grieve us. And people say, like, what happened to you? And you say, I became a Christian. And, and that means that you, you, in a sense, you've got this new identity. There's this spiritual rebirth that takes place. And it happens when you believe in him. Here's what John also writes. Look in John, 1 John uh, 5.13. He says, this is kind of, the, kind of the theme scripture throughout the uh, this, this letter that John writes, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of, name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
He says, I write these things, that's the teachings, that's the ways in which to live the life that God's calling you to live, to you who what? Believe. See, your belief will, will demonstrate and it will help you understand who you are, how God's made you, and also how you're to live. As a child of God, it's not only about understanding how we belong, we believe, but lastly, it informs how we behave. And oftentimes, churches will do this different. They'll, they'll flip it backwards, and behavior becomes the main, the first touch in which you understand Christianity. You've heard it said before, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. It just, it's, 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 it's all about just do this, do this, do that. No, John actually starts the opposite way and says, hey, I want you to know something. You, you're children. You're children of God, and you belong. And the things that I'm writing to you who believe helps you to understand what, what God's word says. And then lastly, it influences your behaviors. Here's what he says, though, in 1 John 3, 7. says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practiced righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In other words, as, a, as if growing up in my household, there was a way in which we lived, and my dad shaped the vision and the values of my household. Our values at our household, growing up in the Rice family, was faith, family, friends, and fun. That was our values. And everything we did shaped around those values, and I took those values upon my, my family, and, and that's how we train up our kids too. But see, the, the, the behavior of how we live was shaped by understanding my belonging and what I believed to be true and right. When it comes to the Christian life, John wants us to understand we belong to God and that we should believe in him and we behave like him. Look what it says again in the text, 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, that's practicing doing the right things, rejecting sin and receiving Christ and his grace is righteous as he is righteous. See, over time what happens is when you spend time with anybody, right? You'll easily pick up their mannerisms or characteristics. Even you can even take on their personality at some level. When I go back down to Arkansas, it's like the southern twang just comes out. And, my, and then my friends are like, dude, you're faking it. I'm like, no, it's actually, it just comes out. And then when I'm with my, my brothers and my, my dad and my sisters and all that, it's kind of like this, I, I just, I, I just, it's just different, you know? Like this, this, this uh, uh, life that I've lived uh, apart has really taught me a lot, but I've noticed there's so many things that are in me that are like my dad. And the truth is, is as a Christian, when you spend time with your heavenly father, you're just more like him. And then everywhere you go, the supermarket, your job place, people are like, man, you're just a little different. And you say, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've just been spending time with the Lord and his word and church, and it's shaping how you live. John says this is really important to understand as a child of God, what you, how you belong, what you believe, and how you behave. So you need to understand as well that God is a really good, good father, okay? He says this in, in 1 John 2, 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not to shrink from him, at, in, him in shame at his coming. The Bible teaches about Jesus Christ coming back one day and restoring and renewing this earth, bringing every uh, wrong and making it right and having justice and peace established here on earth. He's coming again. 
And every single one of us will have to face account to Jesus Christ about the lives we've lived. And John kind of just told us, hey, I want you to know you're God's kid. Now let me tell you about the Father. He's coming. Years ago, when I was five years old, I was, uh, my dad had gone away overseas. He was in medical training. He's a psychiatrist, and he had to get some international training in Monterey, Mexico, and then he went away to uh, Santa Domingo, and we were in Dallas, and I was awaiting my dad, and there were times I just, I'd, I was waiting for my dad for months to show up. And I wanted to behave like a really good little kid because I didn't want to get in trouble and I didn't want the first thing to do that when I saw my dad, I was in trouble. And I was confused and I was concerned. Was, is dad coming home? When's he coming home? I don't understand. I remember talking to him on the phone on the linoleum floor in the kitchen there in Dallas at this little tiny little house. And I'm sitting there talking to him and I'm, I hang up the phone. I'm like, what happened? Where's dad? And then I meet him at the Galleria Mall and I ran towards him and I yelled out, dad, you found me. I felt like I was lost without my dad. And I was so excited he was coming home. And I kind of lived this pattern of a, a life for a few months, just really wanting to prepare. Here's the reality. God's coming back. And you're not lost. He loves you. He knows exactly where you're at. And he wants you to live in such a way that when you meet him, the first thing you don't feel is shame. But you feel joy. God's a good father. God's a good father. God is righteous. 1 John 2 and 3 says this, that he's righteous. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. He is righteous. The word righteous is repeated like 11 times in the passages that we're looking at this morning. It's just over and over and over and over again. It's this, he's righteous. That means he's sinless. He's perfect. He lived out every law, every commandment. He, Jesus lived it out. So he's a good father. He's not good and evil. He's good. He's good yesterday. He's good today. He'll be good tomorrow. We can go to him because he's a good father. Secondly, or thirdly, we need to see that God loves his children. It says this, see what kind of love that the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The love that we're going to look at this morning is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the greatest love that God offers his kids. That's the adoption cost that he gives. So it says this, Jesus takes our sins. Look what it says in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So he takes away sin. This idea of taking away sin uh, has been, kind of could be thought of as the idea that Jesus is like our scapegoat scapegoat in, in kind of culture and theology. Scapegoat is a person or an animal which takes on the sins of others or is unfairly blamed for problems. It's really interesting. The Cubs are in the World Series, and if they don't win the World Series, they're going to blame actually a goat because there's this, this uh, 75-year-old kind of uh, legendary curse that's upon the Cubs right now that a guy 70-something years ago had a goat uh, in a Wrigley Field, had a tavern right next to him, and he would bring this goat, try to bring it into the uh, stadium, and the guys and the people, the officials said, hey, you can't bring your goat in, it stinks. So he said, I pronounce on you a, the, a, the curse of the goat that you'll never win another World Series again. And for every time the Cubs have gotten near a series, they actually blame the goat. And so here they are now. Here's the reality is the Bible talks about a scapegoat. It's the idea on the day of atonement. It was a day in which it was set apart where the priest would make atonement uh, over the scapegoat, laying Israel's guilt upon it. 
And then it would, and they would send this goat away, bearing upon all the iniquities onto a land that's uninhabited, send this goat off into the mountains. The sins of the people were symbolically placed on this scapegoat, which was driven into the wilderness. Later in the New Testament, and specifically in Hebrews 8 and 9, this indicates kind of a foreshadowing of what Christ has done, that he takes away the sins. And what I, this vivid imagery I've had this week is that what's happening so many times in the Christian life is literally Christ says, I want to take the sins, your pain, your problem, all your struggle, everything that's messing up the life that I've intended for you. I want to take that upon myself and I'm taking it away so that you can preserve this wonderful family, this wonderful life, living the life that God has designed. And what we do is say, no, 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 come back. Just, just, just for a little bit longer. See, if Israel would have gone out and chased that goat down in the mountain and brought it back into the, the encampment, it would have been incredibly taboo. See, the reason why Jesus takes away sin is because it's destructive, it's harmful, and hurts. Jesus is actively opposed to sin, and he takes it upon himself because he's the only sinless one that could bear the weight of that. And so God gives us, not only does God demonstrate his love for us in this, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He takes on his, our sins, he takes our sins away. God gives us rules that lead to life. Here's what you're gonna see. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. He's writing so that they know the, to how to live the life here and now and later and to come. Secondly, we need to understand that God's rules are not a burden. For the believer that loves God and trusts in God as a good father, these aren't burdensome rules. Rather, they're a blessing. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So here's the reality. The reality is, is that there's kind of two dangerous attitudes for God's children. They exist here in our church. How do we perceive God as a heavenly father? He's got all these rules. Um, I was a the youth gone wild kind of kid, my generation, Skid Row, ACDC, uh, you know, Poison, you know, Metallica rocking it out. Just, I began to rebel tremendously against the rules of my family, against the rules of, in faith, the rules in the community. And there's kind of two dangerous attitudes that, that John is going to address and has addressed in First John, the apostle exposes two dangerous attitudes towards sin. The first, I'm gonna label permissive, and the second, a perfectionist. In chapter three, he talks about this permissive attitude. And then in chapter one, he talks about a perfectionist attitude. And so we're gonna look at both. Let's look at uh, first in, in this permissive attitude in chapter three, verses four through seven. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, let me stop for a minute and define sin. Sin is anything that breaks God's law. Anything that breaks, deviates from God's plan and purpose. What are sins here in North Valley? I mean, there's lots of different sins that you could say that you see in your own life or you've seen in the lives of others, but I'll name some of the top seven that I've heard and seen. Over-talking, that's gossip and slander. It happens in every church, it happens in every community. Talking about people when you shouldn't. Over-talking, over-eating, over-indulging, over-spending, over-drinking, over-medicating, under-loving, not forgiving people. So we all got this issue called sin. 
And John's gonna speak to that and say, okay, there's two ways in which you respond to being exposed and understanding your sin because God's got a, a rule to live by, a law in which to follow. And he says, I want you to belong, but I want you to believe, but you absolutely must behave because my rules lead to life is what God's word's teaching us. There's, there's other sins, sleeping together while you're unmarried, sleeping together, those that are married, and every single one kind of opens up Pandora's box for problems. And they deteriorate and destroy your life rather than bring life. So here's what we're going to see. He says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, look back at the text, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, meaning like it's a habitual, continual, active process. My son is in flag football. I mean, he works at it, works at it, works at it, does it week after week, week after week. It's routine, it's scheduled. If you've got this little secret private life and you're exercising these practice of sinning, this is not good. The Greek word here is anomia. It's an openly defiant rebellion against God that's ultimately satanic. This idea, it's that it's a habit. It's something that you want to hide. It's something that hurts God's heart for you. It hurts others. It's something that you will deny is wrong. Now, what about Christians that are just, they, they struggle with sin and they're in this habitual pattern of sin and they're trying to break free, but they're struggling. I call this lazy Christians. It's a habit. It's something that you want to hide. It's something that hurts you and hurts others and God. It's something that you admit it's wrong and it actually grieves you. So you want to change and you're afraid of change. So John's gonna help us again. He's gonna say, verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. He's, he's telling the church, hey, you know Jesus came to take your sins, so don't take back your sin. He says, you know that, right? And in him, there is no sin. And then he goes on, verse six, no one who abides in him, spending time with the heavenly father, growing in a relationship with God, keeps on sinning. That means willfully, continually, openly in rebellion against Christ, his church, all that. No one who keeps on sinning has either known him or known him, has either seen him or known him. He's going to say, if you're living in open defiance with this level of sin that is literally like anti-God, anomia, it's open defiant rebellion against God's words and God's ways, you don't even know him. So he goes on to say, verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse eight. He says, Whatever makes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning and the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if you keep returning constantly to these patterns, openly, willfully, habitually, continually, he's like, you don't act like the father of truth. You're living like for the father of lies. The devil's been lying from the beginning. Verse nine, no one who's born he says, no one is born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, that's the idea of the Holy Spirit abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Verse 10, but this is, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a permissive tendency where you just kind of see your Christian life as an opportunity where because of God's grace and he's been good in your life, you get special permits. 
And when you sin, you know you can come to church and you can just say, well, Lord, forgive me. But you don't even have to come to church today. You can do that at home. You know, you can say, Lord, forgive me, and you can say stuff like this. This is what a permissive tendency acts, sounds like. And let me just remind you, every single one of us have a tendency. And John's writing, uh, he's up until this point, he's helped us to understand there's kind of two tendencies for God's kids as it comes to his rules. Sounds like this. It's not that big a deal, God. God will forgive me anyways. Besides, there's a lot of other worse people out there. You ever heard that or ever said that before? A permissive tendency is, you know, I mean, you can do this in parenting. You can do this in anything where it's just kind of like you just downplay everything. And that can lead to a licentious, rebellious lifestyle that does not yield and return life. And John writes that. He says, no, 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 no. You, you don't understand. You can't give yourself special permits. See, we're working with the city right now to get permits so we can get on our campus. And I can't create a special permit. I got to go through a process to get this permit. And so here, John's saying, no, no, no. There is no special permit for this. You don't understand. It will destroy you. If you seek and you constantly try to create your own little permits, that you're hiding things, you're lying about things, and you're denying it altogether, it's not a good idea. So what's the truth for you that have a, per, a permissive tendency? Here's what it is. The truth is in 1 John 3, 9, those who've been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. It means that you just don't, it's not something that you practice at. And when you do sin, you admit it and you acknowledge it, but you're not gonna practice that because God's life is in them so they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So if you have a permissive tendency and kind of make excuses and all that stuff, you need to understand that God's word says, if, if, look, if you're living for Christ, it's gonna change the things on the inside. If you belong to him, you'll begin to see and believe more and more and go, God's ways are better than my ways. But if you constantly look at God's ways and go, God just doesn't know what he's talking about. His, that's archaic. And I've got special favor. Ryan talks about favor. And I got that favor on my life and I'm not gonna talk about this or expose this. Or you take your sin and you go, well, that's not really sin, that's just a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. Just call sin, sin. Let Jesus do his job. He says, I came to take away sin. So don't take it back. So here's what the perfectionist attitude says. And let me ask you the question. Do you have a perfectionist tendency? Perfectionist tendency is those that kind of just pretend you're perfect. Heard a story recently about a gentleman that grew up a missionary kid and he felt uh, his parents didn't put this on him, but he felt the reality that he was a missionary kid. And when they would uh, go on to furlough and they would come back to the United States to um, raise support and meet with family and friends, he kind of had this um, internal challenge that kind of came into his mind, like, I must act like a Christian. I must act like a Christian and I can't do anything wrong. Here's what the perfectionist tendency sounds like. I can't be wrong or mess up because that's just really bad. And besides them, a Christian and Christians don't act like that. And so there became in this man's life as a child, kind of this phantom of a person that was just like him that did everything right. 
And every time he messed up, he felt so, so bad and he buried the guilt. And then when confronted about being wrong, he would say stuff like, he would flat out lie. Not because he wanted to lie, he lied because he didn't wanna be wrong and didn't wanna be a bad Christian. So he accepted this perfectionist lie. Reality is, is that we can do that too, right? We just hate being wrong. We just don't really want to mess up and we don't want to be wrong. And the Bible says is that's not good. That's rooted in pride. Here's what the truth is about a perfectionist tendency. For all of you that navigate, you always do everything right. You're always going the extra mile. You're always trying to make sure everything's perfect. And when somebody confronts you, get really mad, you know, you, you can get really agitated and make excuses, this is the scripture for you. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, then the truth's not in us. Perfectionists have a tendency to deceive themselves. I mean, it's really, really dangerous. It's absolutely anti-gospel. Well, the truth is, is that we're all a work in progress. That's the truth. Here's what the apostle Paul says. There's good news for God's children. You don't need to live in perfectionville. You don't need to live in permissiveville. You need to walk and understand that you're a person in process. You're a person that God's starting to work on. And that when you see sin, you call it sin. And you say, Lord, I, I, I accept for what you did. I understand Jesus came to take sin. I want to give you that. Here's what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He says, I'm sure of this. I'm really sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, that God's starting working in your life. The good news is, as God's kids, is that you're not perfect, but you know the perfect. The perfect is Christ. And that God gave you his Holy Spirit to help you begin a good work in your life. A good work that leads to a life that blesses others, it's not holds love, but it gives love. A life of generosity, a life of kindness, a life that actually looks a lot like the life of the father, like a good father. And you don't have to have a good biological father to do this. You just need to spend time with him. And he'll help you in this. And Paul says, look, whatever God's starting to work in you, he'll work it out as well. And so you can take confidence that this, the reality is here at North Valley, we say no perfect people allowed. Everybody needs to acknowledge they're a person in process. God's working. If you keep struggling with sin, just call it sin. And then just say, God's working on my testimony. I'm a person in process. But don't cheapen it or lie to yourself and deny in the perfectionist reality and go, no, 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 no. And you lie. That's not saying, no, I didn't do that. That's not true. No, 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 just do this. Give that to Christ and say, I did do that. And I'm not perfect. And I thank God that his perfection is good enough. And I take hope in that. And through that, I feel this belonging to God the Father because Christ is perfect. And don't live in permissiveville. Keep thinking you can just write checks all you want, blank checks. God's got it covered no matter what happens in your life and live like a heathen. No, not at all. The Bible says if you keep living like that over and over, are you even saved? And so here's the good news again, First Timothy now. 
115 uh, says this, is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I just want you to know, Timothy, I'm the foremost. See, Paul acknowledged that he struggled with sin. He said stuff like, I do the things that I don't want to do because there's two natures at war within me. There's God's work, his Holy Spirit, and then there's the flesh. And they're constantly in battle against each other. My encouragement to you is acknowledge the battle. My encouragement to you is don't feel any pressure to like think you have to be perfect. I don't think you need to be perfect. I think Jesus Christ is perfect. And I think the, actually the reality, the more you admit that you're not perfect, the more joy in life you're gonna find because you don't have to pretend anymore. You can take off the mask and you can be loved and accepted not for what you do, but because what Christ has done, amen? And then in Permissiveville, the idea of living and being writing yourself permits, it's exhausting because it's totally contradictory to the word. And actually, the more you just live licentious lifestyle where you're just doing whatever you want, contrary to the plain teachings of scripture, you're finding out that it's actually harder that way. That God's life is, is difficult, that you feel distant from God. And the longer you run in rebellion against God, the more grieved you will be. And so John gives us good advice to understand that Christ is enough, that he paid the price, that he is perfect. And that when we live in a relationship with God, our heavenly father, we will absolutely be comfortable and confident to begin to live like the father lives. Here's the take-home truth. I want to invite the worship team up. Here's the take-home truth I want you to think about this week. And I think this could apply to even your parenting style uh, would be this is rules without relationship equals rebellion. See, God didn't just give you a bunch of rules in his word. He gives you a relationship. And that's exactly where John started, right? He said, little children, I'm writing to you about these things. He wants you to know that you're loved, that you're cared for, that you belong, and that you are extended a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In parenting, if I give my kids rules... With no relationship, it's going to equal rebellion. Here's the flip side. Rules with relationship equals reception. See, when you begin to experience that relationship with Jesus Christ, you begin to see, man, his ways are better than my ways. I love being a, a child of God, you say, and I'll follow the rules that you lay out, God, and I'll receive those. But it's through a relationship. The beauty of Christianity, hear me, the beauty of Christianity is that God extends a relationship to you. That every single day you don't have to feel alone no matter what you're going through. That God's there through the power of the Holy Spirit. He promises to help you and comfort you when you're struggling. That he's there and he offers this relationship with you. And it's so sensitive and so intricate just for you. It's not, a, it's not a corporate relationship. Like, I love the church. Yes, he loves the church. No, he's like, I love you. You're my child. I made you in my image. And I've got a life that I intend for you to live. And I'll walk with you every single day. And I'll show you how to live. I'll show you how to navigate conflict. I'll show you how to take sin and give it to Christ. 
And he does that in his word. And so here's my invitation to you. Make a relationship with God your greatest priority. Here are my priorities in my life. I pray it works for you, for, for, that you find how it works for you as it's worked for me. Put God first. He's the greatest relationship you could ever have. He made you. Secondly, if you're married, you place your relationship with your spouse second. And third, everybody else, the family and everybody else. Your relationship matters. And as you receive that relationship with God, you openly receive that. You're not walking in rebellion. You're walking in reception. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that rules don't come without a relationship. You got a better way for us to live like a good father's laid out house rules for the church. Your home, your heart is here, Lord, with these people. You love them individually, Lord, and you love them corporately. And you know everything about them. The Bible says that you, you know every hair that's on their head. That you created them before the foundations of the world were formed. You thought about them. You say that their name is written in a book of life. These are your kids, God. And I pray, God, that they would look to you as a good, good father. They would accept the reality, Lord, that your ways are better, Lord, than our ways. And anytime we walk into sin and rebellion, Lord, we just confess it. Say it. Say, this is sin and I want free from that. Take that, Christ. And so for those of you that never started a relationship with Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray with me something like this. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning. You're holy. You're righteous. And I accept Jesus Christ today. I want to start a relationship with the perfect one. And I receive your forgiveness. Take away my sin. Bring me into your family now. I trust you as Lord. I'm your child. I'm your child forever. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, we're going to go into a time of worship and communion to close out the service today. I want to encourage you. You came in just like me, imperfect. And let's turn our eyes and our attention towards the perfect one. And remember what Christ has done, that God in his grace, right? He gives us an opportunity to be adopted into his family through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, forgiven. There's peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in communion, we do that. We do that. We celebrate that even when we've been rebellious, there is a beauty that we can turn from that and turn to Christ and realize that we've never been thrown out. We're adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. And communion is that opportunity to do that. If you just prayed to receive Christ and start that relationship today, this is for you. If you've been a believer for a long time, this is for you. To remember what Christ has done. He adopts you in and makes you his child through the work of the cross. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for communion. Thank you for this worship. In Jesus' name, would you work in mighty ways in the coming days and weeks and months and years ahead. Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.